It's Rob Moore here, host of the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show. We are at Matchroom headquarters, the headquarters of Barry Hearn. A lot of people think that Barry Hearn interview one was the best interview in 700 episodes we've done. And I think this is even better. We talked about Ben Eubank, why Fight 3 didn't happen. Barry Hearn's legacy. We talked about modern promotion. We talked about Eddie Hearn and how he's building the legacy. We talked about these modern fighters like KSI and Logan Paul and why they're doing these big promotions and the future of sports promotion. There's business advice. There's advice on staying young and childish. I don't know anything that isn't in this interview. But first, don't do anything except subscribe to the channel and hit the notification bell. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show. We have Barry Hearn here. Now, um, Harry behind the scenes here thinks that the interview we did with Barry, it must be, what, three years ago now? Uh, The first one. Um, He thinks it's the best one we've ever done in 700 episodes. So, no pressure, Barry. (laughs) None felt. Let's get this show on the road. Do you want to take that as the mark? We got got the mark, Barry. I've always liked to hijack the marking. (laughs) You don't really feel you're involved in this. Barry, is it true that when you started to make good money in the early days, your mum thought you were a gangster? Yeah, actually, in this building, um, I think my mum was, she was very snobbish, my mother. I mean, you've got to cast yourself back is... Just after the war, we move out of the East End because a lot of it had been bombed. We move into a new industrial estate, council houses. She's cleaning houses. My dad's a bus driver, but my mum's a snob. And that's really good because she wanted more for her children. She wanted, and she really was the driving force of our whole family. My father was ill, died very young, but my mother was a real driving force. She was the one that said to me when I got to grammar school, which was a major breakthrough. I think I was about the only kid on my estate that got to grammar school. She said, right, this is where your life starts. And she enrolled me in the Amateur Dramatic Society, the Verse Appreciation Society, and she gave me elocution lessons, which as you can see, (laughs) have worked. (laughs) But she was that type of person. So she came up with that. She wanted more and more. And as my life changed and God smiled on me, I got a little bit successful. And I bought this place we're in today in 1982. How much did you buy it for? I paid £245,000 for it. It was owned by the Ford Motor Company. Right, because we we were trying to guess what it'd be worth now. Probably about six or seven, something like that. Right, yeah. But it was owned by the Ford Motor Company, office's head office, administration office, just up the road in Worley, they had a lot of these big country houses for their senior staff, and this was president of Europe's home. So it was a, co- a corporate house. And obviously they decided this wasn't the way forward and they should get rid of them. So I bought this, they wanted 260, I got it for 245. It was just after I sold my billiard hall chain in 82, so I was flush with money at the time. Uh, it didn't last long. And, <laughs> but the great thing was, you know, obviously, come from the East End, I'm, I'm, I'm made up this place for a proper gaff. Look out there, I see London, I'm on the top of a hill in Essex. I've always wanted to own Essex anyway, so you start, <laughs> you've got to start somewhere. Uh, my mum came to see me and I wanted her to be proud. That's why I you know, said, have a look, what do you think of this? And she was proud, but slightly horrified because she couldn't, she didn't have the 
conception or the understanding or the imagination that this little boy that she wanted so much for and had pushed and pushed. I mean, she used to lock me in my bedroom to make sure I did my homework. <laughs> she used to lock me literally when I was studying to be a chartered accountant. Monday to Friday, I couldn't go out. I was 20 years old. My mother still told me what to do. So, you know, the woman in my life has always been the boss. <laughs> but she looked around this place and the gardens and the grounds and the facilities and she just got confused and she said, are you doing anything illegal? <laughs> and I said, mum, I'm a chartered accountant. We make terrible gangsters. <laughs> I don't think she believed me. No. She just couldn't understand how life had moved on. And, and that's nice. I mean, that's nice. You know, parents always want the best for their kids. Mm. But the kids also want the best for their parents. And, you know, as you get older, you appreciate that balance between the two of you. It's called love. Yeah. You basically went, I think, from our research from an amateur snooker promoter to now, let's be honest, it's a multimedia empire. You do promotions all around the world for many sports. Can you sort of take us on that journey? Because I think that's about a 50-year journey. Yeah, it's not far off. It's coming up for 50. I mean, look, I've always wanted to be a top sportsman myself. I still do. I'm still ambitious at 73. It's ridiculous, <laughs> but I'm childlike. You know? And it's lovely when you're childlike because you can be superficial and you can just give it your best shot. And you get knocked down so many times, you just keep getting up. That's, that's life. So... When I grew up, I wanted to be heavyweight champion of the world. And I used to listen on my radio to the fights coming in. I don't know why, none of my family boxed, but I just used to see it on the news and think it looks great, you know. Uh, of course, I subsequently found out I wasn't very good at fighting, so it was a bit of a career change. But nevertheless, I always wanted to be good at something, and I never was, which is a sadness. I was always okay, but I was never brilliant. So. I was gold medal enthusiasm, <laughs> not even bronze medal in ability. So I tried everything from the pole vault to the 1500 meters. I was a long distance runner. I was a sprinter, discus, hurdles, um, shot put, pole vault, everything. Second, third in everything, never ever won anything. So that's, that gave me my interest in sport. Then I sort of concentrated on making money, which I ended up, I thought I ended up being quite good at, which is remarkable. Uh, and that was only because I had common sense rather than I was no, I mean, I was no genius. I never have been a genius. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm street smart, you know. That? And sometimes that works better, especially in travelled economies. So I've got a lot of common sense. I duck and dive well, you know. I think poor. I don't leave a pound on the table. Don't matter what I've got. I wouldn't walk past a tenner on the floor <laughs> without picking it up. So that's a good principle in life. And then over that period, I realised that I could actually achieve both my goals of carrying on with running successful businesses as a chartered accountant. I was eminently qualified to do that, but at the same time fulfil my passion and my love of sport, although not necessarily as a participant, although I still dream, I still dream. Uh, and starting with snooker, was a business venture that turned into a passion for the sport. And obviously meeting Steve Davis, early doors. But realising from the business side, I needed to do amateur snooker events in my snooker clubs to drive traffic. You know, it was a business. And then I realised, this is great. I love this. This is exciting. Mm. And then Steve came along and you think, wow, you know, and 
How lucky is that? I mean, it's better to be born lucky than good looking, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Davis walks in off the street. I mean, come on. My dog could have made money out of him. You know, he was so good and dominant. So then as you sort of develop as a human being, you get a little bit more mature. You're not chasing perhaps business just to make money. Then you realise you can fulfil that passion you've always had and say, well, let's have a look at boxing and... I came along with Bruno Bugner as my first big fight, which made well over a million pounds. It was, it was a lot of money. I mean, still a lot of money now, but in 87, that was a good night's work. Uh, that gave me, ooh, I think I'll take over boxing. <laughs> and then I used to play a lot of pool myself on the West Coast of America and things like that. So we should do some pool, there's no... And of course, all this coincided with another hugely lucky moment when Sky started. You know, suddenly I had a broadcaster that was saying to me, what you got? Instead of other broadcasters that were saying, we've got no time, we've got no airspace. Suddenly Sky was going, we need hours. I'm like, here I am, baby, <laughs> what can I do? And of course it, it just, I had rain. So I had a reputation, I, you know, I've got a good, so, solid business reputation, deliverance, quality. Probably I was always a little cheaper than everybody else as well because I wanted to give everyone a reason to support me. And then I just grew the product and grew the sports. So basically Matrim as a company has only ever promoted sports that I played or that I love. So we won't get involved in doing something just to make money. I mean, we, I don't like motorsport. Sorry, petrol heads, but that's just me. I go to Wimbledon once a year, but I don't really like tennis, although I appreciate technically how difficult it is. And if I haven't got any passion, I can't promote it. How can you promote something you don't really care? Is it just a business? No, it's never been a business. It started off to have, as a method of having fun. And lo and behold, the good Lord smiled on me and said, Bazza, not only is it going to be fun, it's going to make a shed load for you. I'm like, well, thank you very much, Jesus. <laughs> are more than grateful to accept. There are not many people, Barry, who have stayed relevant and evolved and endured probably three or four recessions over 50 years. And we were talking about the questions coming down because we had a lot and we had to take a lot out. And I wanted this one in. This, was, this is my one because, you know, someone like Steve Redgrave, you know, he was so successful, but over like five cycles yeah, yeah. of Olympics. <laughs> yeah. And I'm fascinated because everyone can come in and have a quick win. Yeah. But what, so... Could you give us a couple of tips on how you've stayed re relevant and successful and endured recessions and difficult times over five decades? Well, it's a great question. In fact, I don't want to be too complimentary, but it's probably the best question I've ever been asked. I'll take that. And I don't know exactly how you do it, but the resilience is something that's born in you because it's about character. You see, there's an awful lot of people out there that are quite good at nicking stealing a little bit of, you know, or being in the right place, right time, just cashing in. Yeah. They don't think about tomorrow. They think, and there's a lot of operators that I, work, that I know of now, I've still got that attitude. Boxing in particular in boxing, mm. they're always interested, just get the money, get the money. Yeah. They don't say, how do we build a business? They can always nick a living. Well, the secret is not to try and nick a living, but to build your own personal IP, based on your own character. And the character has got to be resilient, imaginative, it's got to be creative, 
and it's got have a huge bundle of common sense. You know, in, you start off with some old fashioned ways. The Victorians used to save money. Do you remember saving money? Today, the world's financed on credit cards and overdrafts, and people want to live today. But I am more the laissez-faire Victorian approach of let's make sure we've got a very stable foundation for this business. There's no point in having the most gorgeous roof on a house if the foundations are not solid. It will eventually fall down. So the foundation's built on common sense of running a profitable business and making sure that you've got enough reserves for that rainy day. So I've always been a saver. I've always been, I don't, you know, during the bad times in the 88, 89, probably worse one I had, I did have to go to the bank. I had to borrow millions of pounds and it was horrible, you know, paying these lovely people 16% interest. Like normally you'd have a mask on and a shotgun in your hand if you're taking away money like that, wouldn't you? you know? <laughs> These bankers just do it to you and it's okay. But it, what it does is it realises if I ever get through this, I, you learn lessons as you go. The next time this, this happens, and it will, because it's, we live in a cyclical world, I'm going to be prepared. Mm. So 88, 89 was my toughest time, without a doubt. I mean, I didn't know, well, I thought at one stage I might have to you know, I'd made a load of money in 82, I'd lost it all and was borrowing millions of pounds from the bank in 88, 89. Creating events, getting ready for TV stations that didn't come when I thought they would. I thought Sky would be there in 87. They didn't turn up to 1980, to 1990. So you start building up a business plan for yourself. You think, okay, I managed to get through that just by bloody mindedness. Now, I used to come in the office every day and say, I'm not leaving until I've sent someone, somewhere, an invoice for <laughs> at least a thousand pounds. And I'd sit in my office and think, right, what can I do? Who, what can I sell? Who have I got? And I never left for two years until I sent an invoice every day. During that period, of course, climate change, and then you adjust. So you've got to be flexible and you've got to be creative and look at ways of saying, let's do... I mean, and that tends to be a little bit of recovery built in with survival. That's not a good balance because you don't make long-term, you make short-term decisions. The long-term decision for me in those days was, what I've got, I'm going to own. So the one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to endanger my family. I'm going to make sure I've got a house, I've got a roof to live under. And then you start thinking, now I'm going to build reserves because when this happens again i'm going to be ready and that's what happened so i always was cash reserved once i got over the hiccup of 87 88 nothing could hurt me and covid is a great example all of the sports in covid virtually everything stopped didn't mm. it for a long time during the covid worst 12 months we did more events than we would do in a normal year wow and that's just because we could afford to. We were bloody minded. We had a responsibility to sportsmen and women because they were self-employed. And you don't take it off people in the good times and not be prepared to give it back to them in the bad times. Mm. So darts players, snooker players, they were my life, they're my living. That's what this business has been built on. All of a sudden COVID's there, all right, dig in your pocket, Bazza. What's the point of having a rainy day fund when it's pouring and you don't use it. 
So we did. Mm. And we came out of it at the end as a much stronger business, much more creative, much more energised. Now we are getting ready as we speak here. Boxing's back with Fight Camp. We're during the World Match Play Dites with a full crowd at Blackpool. The Snooker World Championships next year is already sold out. You know, and life is bloody sweet, mate. <laughs> so appreciate the bad times and the good times will put you on another level. There isn't a drug in the world, not that I have experience with drugs, but I believe there's not a drug in the world could give you the same high as having a successful business that treats people properly and you know is here for the long term, not the short term. And that you put in that, that feeling into your staff, they know they're always going to have a job. Our bonuses were bigger in 30th of June this year than they were pre-COVID. Wow. Because we did well. Yeah. And when you do well, you reward people. Mm. That keeps them loyal, keeps them productive. And I think in a way, grateful is, you know, the sportsmen and women that we have, they can't believe that they've, they've got through COVID and still had earning opportunities. Mm. But I think that's our responsibility and that's the payback for the, for the good times. Mm. And the better times, as always, are just round the corner. <laughs> I love that. Can we talk a bit about promotion? Mm. So I need to give you a bit of context for this question. Um, you've worked with people like Steve Davis, mm. who, you know, you showed gratitude to obviously one of the greatest snooker players that's ever lived and then there's these people like conor mcgregor for example like conor mcgregor i think's lost quite a lot of his fights recently mm. but obviously is everyone loves him and he seems very promotable so a couple of questions is one can you spot talent or wow they are promotable and is there a difference between someone who's great at their sport and someone who's promotable because they've got other um, promotable um, traits, if you like. Well, it just depends what you're trying to achieve, firstly. Do you want to be a winner uh, in your sport, or do you want to be a winner and rich in your sport? Being famous is actually probably more important in today's time frame than being good. You know, if you're not famous, however good you are, you're never going to get the rewards. Mm. So you need that. And we live in a world of characters and personality, don't we? Mm. We have heroes and we have villains. We have interest. The secret is you don't ignore the traditional fan, but you concentrate on the casual fan. Yeah. That's where the money is. So the casual fan, for example, in boxing, never says, what a lovely left jab. Look where his feet are. Brilliant balance. The casual fan says, I want a knockout, I want an exciting fight, and plenty of blood and guts, <laughs> and I'm going to tell my mates about it when I go to work on Monday. Yeah. So there's about 95% casual fans in any sporting event. Right. I'm leaving out football, because yeah. football is more of a religion than a sport. Yeah. In general sports terms, we have to reach those casuals, and to do that, we have to maximise the personality or lack of personality in Steve Davis's case. <laughs> we have to maximise that so they become famous. And when they're famous, the job is easier. So Steve Davis was a real litmus test for me as a promoter because here I couldn't find anything to maximise on. He was just really good at snooker. And then I, it struck me one day is 
Why don't we concentrate on maximizing the fact that there is nothing to maximize on? Let's just tell the truth. Let's just call him boring. And you know what? It was one of the best commercial operations you've ever seen. Mm. Interest in Steve Davis became a household cult figure. And, and yet he would walk around saying, well, I'm, I'm not really excited, am I? And everyone used to go, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's a bit like Peter Sellers in being there. Do you remember the gardener who used to, if you watched the film, where he just told the truth as a simple gardener and everybody construed his words to be this deep understanding of life. Of course he wasn't. But it's the king has no clothes. Mm. If you can convince someone that this is real, then you, you, you're over the line. Mm. So the secret is, other than the genius of building Davis, the, the rest of it is actually maximizing personality traits that you identify in individuals. So, and, they, and you don't change an individual, by the way, because it come, they're not actors, they're not good enough to be changed. So you have to take something that's real about the individual. Conor McGregor's a good answer. He's a violent Irishman that loves money. He's a flash bugger and his language on, on air is appalling. Mm. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Away you go, boy. Let him run and he'll mm. sell the show for you and he'll build his own persona. And even though he's lost his last few fights, he's still probably earning more money than any MMA fighter out there. Mm. Mission accomplished. Mm. It's not just about winning. Once you get that round your head, now if you can get someone that also wins, now you have a global superstar. Mm. And that's the currently the job with Anthony Joshua. The guy's interesting, he's intelligent, he's good looking, everyone loves him, but he's also very good. And if you can get that, those two together, now you're on a different level. But you don't have to have the two together. You know, you mm. get people like Tyson Fury or wherever, who I don't think he's as good as Joshua. We'll find out perhaps one day yeah. if he ever decides to grow a pair and, <laughs> and actually fight Anthony. Um, but he will still be a huge earner. Yeah. Because he's, he's very famous. So, you know, and this comes into commercial life as well. You know, I've just finished my autobiography, which is quite interesting. It's taken me five years of sweat because I wanted to do it properly and mm. it'll be published next April. This is not a plug. No, but what, what's it called? So we no, can... No, we don't know what it's called. Oh. I'll give it a title yet. <laughs> but the point I'm making is, Eddie did a book in about three months. His advance and his sales will probably be double mine because he's more famous mm. in social media. And that has more kudos than, you know, as my author said, the difference between my book and Eddie's is Eddie's is a comic and mine is a classic. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's going to sell. And yeah. it may be appreciated much more when I'm dead, like a good oil painting. <laughs> Whereas Eddie's is a great Christmas present to his social media followers. So you have to tailor-made your market to the circumstances you operate in. Mm. But being famous is, as I say, in the reality world we live in, yeah. much more important than just being good. Mm. Well, that's actually... Our next two questions are linked to this. What do you think of this new wave of sort of YouTuber and mm. celebrity fighters who aren't fighters? So KSI, Logan Paul, Eddie Hall and Thor Beyonce. You know, there's all these, like I interviewed Floyd Mayweather a few weeks ago and he just fought Logan Paul. I mean, it probably links to what you've just said. What do you think of all that? I think it's great. Because... You don't think it ruins the classic no, nature no, of the sport? Yeah, on. You're doing it, aren't you? You're going back to being a traditional sports fan. You're a purist. There's no word. Purists are great. You know, and, and do you know what? 
<clears throat> there's 500 purists in boxing. And they'll go to every show. Yeah. And God bless them, we need them. There are times when I used to have crowds of less than 500. So I was very pleased. Eddie's crowds are 90,000. Mm. There aren't 90,000 purists. No. So anything that brings new people in to boxing is great for the sport. It doesn't look, when I look at it, do I like it? Would I go, no, I'm, I'm a bit of a purist myself. But I can appreciate the fact that these guys are getting paid for the fame they have accrued during their lifetime. Their investment has not been in stocks and shares and bonds. Their investment has been in themselves. So you should applaud that. They are you know, still taking it quite seriously, but they're clearly technically not as gifted as pretty well any boxer I've ever seen, you know. Mm. Uh, I was useless when I was younger. I might have a chance against one or two of them. <laughs> Only in my dreams, of course. But you know, see what I'm saying is, I, you can't, the world is evolving and it's changing. You have to change with it. Mm. Old people like me can't say, oh, well, what's this Twitter? I'm not going near that. You're out of business, aren't you? I remember years ago when racing, a uh, load of my mates in the East End owned betting shops for whatever reason. And when SIS started showing pictures from race courses, this was a major, major move, you know, because it was the tannoy. You'd go in there and just be a commentary, right? All of a sudden, pictures. But they wanted seven grand a year. I remember my mates in the betting shops, seven grand a year? I ain't paying. My customers don't want that. They were all out of business in three months. So you have to move with the times, whether it's Barry Earn, whether it's Steve Davis, whatever. You move with the times. And these guys have done that. They, they're showing that. They're a businessman, but it's in a new business. And if you don't open your mind to appreciate that business, then you become on the scrap heap of yesterday. Mm. So I applaud their effort. I think they're good for the sport. If 10% of people that tune in, because it's KSI or Logan Paul, if 10% of those become boxing fans for our shows, thank you very much, Logan Paul, KSI. Because mm. it's a new market, and we mustn't close our eyes to new markets. Mm. And do you think that's why your son, Eddie Hearn, do you think he's big on social media? I mean, he's almost more famous than some of the people he yeah. promotes. Is that a strategic thing with no, him? Very much so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a business, you know. I mean, why, do, why is Eddie so much more successful than any other boxing promoter in the world, either from a personality point of view or from a financial point of view? And the reason is because he's better known. Mm. He's more famous. Mm. Now, this is scandalous. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, when I saw this evolvement, I was out because I knew I couldn't do it myself. Right, why? Because I'm too old. Oh. You see, I won't appeal. Grey hair, fat belly, just not today's market. Eddie is today's market. And I feel in a way, I'm sad for me and all the other old timers, you know. <laughs> Frank Warren, he tries, he wears nice suits every now and again. Bob Arum, you know, he's got lifetime experience. They're so yesterday, mm. they, they won't be treated. Even the fighters, if they really don't want to be with them, they'll be with them for the money, but they don't really. It's not cool being with them. You know, when you see Canelo, and Eddie together, you know, the number one drawer in the world, or AJ and Eddie together. Those two, they're the, by far the two biggest commercial animals in boxing. Mm. They enjoy being with Eddie, and Eddie enjoys being with them. Mm. And they talk about clothes. 
And they talk about cars. And they talk about <laughs> what's the sunglasses you're wearing. You know, you know, I saw pictures of them in Canelo's ranch the other day, two o'clock in the morning, riding some of Canelo's horses. You know, mad, probably too much tequila inside. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's the market. That's the wow factor of Love Island. Mm. That's this reality. And you can't ignore it. So you get the traditionalists, the Warrens, the Hearns, the Arabs. Forget them. They're yesterday's news. Old chip paper. <laughs> Throw them away because they're sitting there going, Logan Paul can't even jab. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it matters. Mayweather, one of the greatest fighters of all time, boxed Logan Paul. Mm. How can that be? It's a total mismatch. He did over a million buys in the US. Mayweather, who's very honest and open, says it was legalised bank robbery. He made 14 million. He didn't even have to train for it. Mm. But, but at the end of the day, what are we criticising? Someone making a good living? No, we have to embrace it. And then we say, how can we use it? And if we can use that as part of a show, and use that money to develop other fighters, or women boxing, or whatever, then it's all good, isn't it? Mm. But these other guys, you see, they, they're always thinking about, let's make a profit today, because you don't know what's around the corner. What we say is, let's plan where that corner is. So Eddie's planning global domination, built on social media, becoming effectively the UFC of boxing where we're doing shows now in Mexico, in Italy, in Spain. We're about to start, start in Australia, Japan, because we have vision. We're not just nicking a living. We want to nick the whole world. <laughs> that would have been the best way to finish. <laughs> Love it. So was it always your grandmaster plan to have Eddie take over the empire and grow it? Was it something you wanted for Eddie or Eddie wanted for himself? Yeah, I think it was a master plan for both my children, Eddie and Katie, eventually uh, to come into a family business that it was, you know, it's been a huge part of my life. Um, I probably wasn't the greatest dad when I was younger. I was so concentrating on driving the business forward. It's nice that they can get some benefit. And then hopefully the pendulum swings and they end up looking after their dad as they get older. I don't know. <laughs> they probably won't. They just nickel the money and boot me out somewhere. But... With Eddie and, and Katie, they both went and did their own thing. First off, I mean, Katie went to Sky. She had six years with Sky. First uh, woman producer of Premier League football. And when I thought she was ready, he said, well, come and run our TV. Now she's top lady at Matchroom Media, and it's a huge job for her. Uh, Eddie went off to, to, you know, to sort of sponsorship agencies, double glazing salesmen. This is the greatest, you know, being rejected and being told to fuck off a few times. <laughs> if you don't get used to it in our life, then you're out of business. Yeah. You know? But you have to be resilient and you develop your character. And then he did that and I brought him back, as you know, to, to run the golf division first with the PGA Euro Pro Tour. Then I, he, he was successful at that and I took him into our poker division. He was very successful at that. And then he came to me and said, I want to do the boxing. And that was the day when I got my P45 and was told to go. And all the, all the lovely pictures of me in this building suddenly got removed <laughs> and replaced with pictures of Eddie. But, but that's a succession that you, you must embrace. Mm. I'm very proud of the children. As any parent wants to be proud of their kids. And I think they're proud of me. So, you know, I can 
Of course I've spoiled them, you know, of course they're silver spoon kids. I wasn't, and we'd, we'd never be the same as people, but that's inside their DNA that they're grafters. Mm. Don't matter what, you know, they were dealt a good hand, but it's what you've done with that hand. And, you know, and they've both added ma- massively to this business. You know, I don't know what we're going to do this year. We're, I guess we're the most successful sports promotion company in the world. Wow. Profitable, without a doubt. Yeah. And we started underneath a billiard all with me and a girl. So something's gone right. And I believe, as my hero Warren Buffett always, who I've never met, I'd love to meet him, but it's all about management, you know. Let's not kid ourselves. It's not just about the person that does the interview. It's about who's behind you that actually fuels the engine. Mm. And I've been very lucky and also very good at identifying young people, two of them being my children, but others, no relation, that have come through and ended up being senior management from starting right at the bottom, Mm. which is the best way to start, Mm. because then you learn the business. So Frank Smith in boxing, Zeddy's right-hand man and major player now, we started off here as a 16-year-old pouring cups of coffee for poker players. Matt Poulter runs the Professional Darts Corporation, major main board director, major business. Uh, started off as the press officer at Lake Orient. Emily Fraser started off being the errand girl for Matrimony Sport. All these people have taken, like, they've done what I did. They saw an opportunity and they've t- taken their chance and their life's going to change through it in sport in the same way as sportsmen and women's life change through success. Yeah. And then we're no different. We're still, we're still running the same race. We're still having the same fight. Mm. And, you know, that's what makes it exciting every day. Mm. My son, when he was three, he got a hole in one and he was the youngest, unofficially because we didn't get a video, but youngest person ever to get a hole in one. Mm, And then he played in the world under six at five and six. And I think it, and I played single figures when I was a kid, but he beat me scratch fair and square on pitch and putt when he was five years old. He shot a two under gross on a pitch and putt and I was 50% proud and 50% pissed off. (laughs) How do you feel with um, Eddie? I don't believe that. I think you're 100% proud. But it's, if you're pissed off, you're only pissed off with yourself because you realise that God had not given you that level of ability. (laughs) I mean, with Eddie, yeah, I mean... We have a wonderful relationship in terms of taking the mick out of everybody. And over a period of time, you know, it's a, there's a deep love there, but you'd never know it in conversation. <laughs> so, I mean, the last person I went in the ring with, as you know, is Eddie. I was 47, he was 16, and, and I thought he was turning out to be a bit of what we call a trappy, young, spoiled kid. Mm. And I didn't like what I was seeing. I wanted to find out what he was really like. And I found out the best place possible, in a proper boxing ring, having a proper fight. Mm. And he dropped me twice in the second round, and I went home much happier than him, because <laughs> it proved the point. And I think we do set ourselves levels for what, but you know, the pride of watching your kid do something. Mm. I mean, he batted me in front of, I mean, I think I won the first round. He batted me in the second round, terrible. And he was a big lump. but. I can't tell you how happy I was. And it sounds peculiar, you know. I didn't want to eat that night because he dropped me with body shots, but I was so proud. 
And I thought, I've got someone here who's something, you know. And the same with all of them, you know. I look on my employees as they're like family to me, just yeah. the same. And I'm proud of them when they do something. And I'm really critical when they cock up as yeah. well. But me and Eddie, we, we're like, I don't know, a couple of mates sometimes and very competitive in everything we do, mm. everything we do. And that's, that's good. Mm. You know, I don't know, I've, I've got used to getting beat, but every now and again I have my day. I was a faster marathon runner than my son and he thought that was nothing until he tried a marathon. That's my last of my bragging points. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, it, it's all part of the family relationship and, and business is an extension of that, you mm. know. I mean, he constantly tells me this business wouldn't be anywhere near as big without him. And I constantly agree with him. Because mm. I think it's important to say the truth, but at the same time, so that's, that's where we are now. Now, where are we gonna be? Mm. What are your plans going forward? And are you ready for the disaster that's round the corner? Because there is always one. <laughs> so don't get carried away with yourself and don't believe it's all down to you. Mm. It's down to everybody in this building, in this company, in its offices around the world. So acknowledge that we're lucky people and take what God gives you. Amen. So we've got a couple more and then we're going to do the quick fire. Okay. So why did Nigel, Ben, Chris, Eubank 3 never happen? Oh, bizarre. Do you know that's probably the worst thing in my... No, Michael Watson injury was the worst thing in my boxing career, if you want to call it that. But not doing Ben Eubank 3 would be second. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was all part of the master plan to happen. So Eubank Ben 1 was a pivotal changing point in my life. I fancied we were going to win and we did. And he gave me a superstar who was loyal and we could progress our mutual careers. It was very successful. Eubank Ben 2, had to happen for money because the public were demanding it and let's do it. And it wasn't anywhere near as good a fight as Eubank Ben won. And there's lots of people who didn't know, was the draw right? Did, if most people thought Nigel Ben had won that, I thought the draw actually, in fact, I said it in the ring with Gary Newborn immediately after the fight, because I always score fights. I said, I can't separate them. One of the reasons I couldn't separate them because it wasn't a great fight. <clears throat> there wasn't anyone was in, no one was really dominant. So it over, I remember Eubank's words to me, as the bell, as the announcement came out, it's a draw. Eubank, like totally confused, said, a draw, what does that mean? And I said to him instantly, it means we get to do it again. <laughs> because all I'm thinking is, this is now mega. And of course, at that stage, building in the background, really almost ready, was pay-per-view. And, and you know, we learn lessons from across the pond all the time in sport. It always comes over here eventually. Mm. You know, the idea of subscription TV, oh, ESPN, HBO, they had, that was going that was Sky, but we saw it. So that gave me a chance to maneuver myself into the sports business by getting ready for what I'd seen in America. It was a little bit slower than I thought, which caused me some problems, but it did eventually come. Pay-per-view was exactly the same, you know. Five years before they're doing pay-per-view in the States, you know it's going to come over. You know, greed alone makes it happen, doesn't it? <laughs> so that was the plan for you, Batman 3. The issue there was I'd taken a partner in Eubank Ben 2, and that partner's name was Don King. 
You make Ben too, it was quite a risky fight for me. I was giving Ben a million. I was giving you back 900 grand. I didn't, I had a site, but I, I hadn't sold any tickets. I hadn't got any overseas TV. And I hadn't really done a UK TV deal, but it, it, it was, there was a risk factor until Don King took away that risk. He gave me $2 million for the overseas TV. Happy days, I'm in front now, everyone else is pluses. And we made a load of money. But Don's price was, I want Eubank Ben to be with me after this fight, win or lose. And I spoke to both fighters and I explained that what the offer from King was, it was a massive offer to fight in America and all that. And both fighters said, if you're happy, fair enough. And I said, yeah, I'm happy, I'm making a load of money. And, you know, and you're entitled to your chance of building your career. Now, of course, it didn't happen because the fight was a draw. So Don didn't have any contractual rights over either fighter, which disappointed him somewhat. <laughs> uh, more, more of that another day. Uh, but Nigel Benfeld had won that fight. So he was really pissed off with me because you, he knew that Eubank was my fighter, really, although I had them both. I was always more Eubank than anybody else. In the same way as in snooker, I was always more Steve Davis than anyone else. You can't help that. Uh, and Eubank, the last judge, was Harry Gibb in their Eubank Ben 2 fight. And he gave it by a round to Eubank. Well, Harry Gibb lives about 400 yards up the road from here. And everyone viewed that as a favour. But of course it wasn't. Harry Gibb just scored it as he saw it. He said, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but Ben was pissed. So Ben said, as I said to both of them, listen, you're free agents. I had no contract over either of them. Do what you like. You know, King still wants you. I would like you. Do what you like. Nigel had the arse with me. So he left and he went with Don King. And Eubank stayed loyal and, and stayed with me. And we went on to do the Sky deal and all that. And made quite a lot of money. <laughs> Um, and for that reason, then you had two different camps. You know, at the time, Don King was doing a lot of business with Frank Warren, and obviously he was a competitor to mine. So it was like, let's, you know, let's gang up on Barry, blah, blah, blah. They lost, not a problem. But it was, uh, it was impossible to do the fight because you couldn't get them together. Common mm. sense, you know. Has the world changed that much? You know, I'm looking at Tyson Fury and AJ and the fact that Eddie was driving the deal. I don't think Warren and Bob Arum are particularly bothered that that fight's not happening right. at the moment mm. because they, they see themselves potentially losing control. The trouble when you do great fights with different camps, someone loses. Mm. And they, you know, in fact, even when you've got both boxes, I've had it several times. Even if you've treated them properly and you're paying them properly, the loser will fall out with you, you know, mm. at some level, because they're looking for someone to blame or you know, it's not their fault, you know, and that's what happens. But it's a, it's, I'm gutted, you know, because it would have been the way to launch pay-per-view in the UK. Yeah. You believe how many buys that would have done? It would have been never beaten, ever. Mm. But it never happened because personalities and politics in boxing. Mm. Story of boxing's biggest demise. Mm. You've got to put that to one side, forget. 
We're looking at making sure the fighters get rewarded, not the promoters. Just make the fights the fans want to see and pay the boxers the right amount of money. If you're a good operator, there's still a profit in it for you, but don't be greedy. Mm. Do you know what? I reckon there's seven unanswered questions in that, but we'll have to come back to that. If you want some help promoting your book next year, I'd love to help you with that, so maybe we could come back down and do that. I think we should do one every couple of years anyway, because, you know, it's interrupting. You know, you're still dressing young, and over a period of time, you'll get older and you'll understand my perception a bit more. (laughs) Yeah. At the moment, you're still hanging on in there, aren't you? I'm trying. I I can see that. You know, your crew are the same, you know. Yeah. I was in their shoes, I was in their trousers. (laughs) Wearing shorts behind cameras. I know. I mean, in my day, you know, everything was a bow tie. Yeah. We're trying. We're trying. No, listen. <laughs> as I said, we've got to move on. We've got to move on. But, yeah. Uh, now, there's, lot, there's, there's lots of things you can talk about with the psychology of business and the winning mentality. But it does, it sort of levels out as you get older. You do take, you get a bit more reflective mm. and you take a different view on things. You know, when you're young and aggressive, it's like, kill it. <laughs> I've been there, kill everybody, get rid of it, we don't have any opposition, then I'm, you know, fist of iron. Mm. And then you sort of mellow and understand the other point's perspective a bit more. And then you get to a certain stage where you think it really doesn't matter. Mm. I'm at that stage now, you know, as you look around, of course, I still want everyone to perform, but actually, if they don't perform, I'm going to take the piss out of them in a humorous way, you know? Yeah. And if they do perform, I'm going to reward them beyond their wildest imagination because it's actually quite nice to change other people's lives as well. Mm. My life got changed. I don't know why God smiled on me and I had a good mother or whatever you want to say. Or I just got lucky. But my life changed. So the question now is, what do I do with it? That's a new. My wife said to me, when we were poor, my wife's been with me since she was 16 I was 18. So we've been married 51 years. She's still the only person in the world I'm frightened of. Yeah? <laughs> and I've dealt with some proper people. Yeah. And they've never frightened me. Because I just remind you know, Susan, a look across the room is like a worse slap in the face. <laughs> you know you know that feeling with a wife? I do. Yeah. You, Got one this morning well, before you, I left. You, yeah. you, you, you get it. And you treasure those moments in a way. But what we do is you do become, you're more open as you get older. And I think... Mm. You're not more intelligent, but you're more worldwide. And you look around and you think, you know, as I said to you earlier, I think off camera is the first stage of any successful person's life, especially an entrepreneur, there is a born risk taker. But risk taking is not something to be applauded necessarily. Because if you've got nothing, there's no risk, is there? Mm. What do you end up with? Double nothing? <laughs> well, any mathematician, mathematician will tell you that's still nothing. Yeah. The risk taker when you, someone like Eddie comes in into my business and everyone goes, oh, lucky boy. He's under pressure. And he, mm. His dad came from nothing to make a load of money. What's he going to do? If he doesn't take it to the next level, he's failed. Mm. Well, I had to take my next level and my dad was a bus driver. I had nothing to do. I, I was under no pressure whatsoever. And I've had that attitude my whole life. The moment I've got a few quid and I've got, bought a house and I've paid for it, what are they going to do to me? Mm. They being the establishment, the people, the people that we went in to go up against. And it's just nice keeping that competitive spirit. Mm. So the reflectiveness is 
Number one, you started off being very selfish and just making sure whether you want to be successful at any price, and I mean at any price. Then when you do get there a bit, you start saying, mm, I've got responsibilities here, kids, wife, whatever, I've got to make sure they're done. And, the, and if possible, maybe the generation after as well. That gives you a very warm feeling. They probably won't enjoy it, but they may just toast your health when you're upstairs. <laughs> Thanks, Baza. Made my life so much easier. And then number three is you remind yourself of where you come from. Mm. That's, that, that's, my, that's, um, that's the stage I'm at now, which yeah. I really enjoy. And I can do things and I can make a difference. And that's something that you don't publicise, you don't even put in books. That's just one for you when mm. you go to bed at night. And you close your eyes and you think, I've really enjoyed today. That's great. Can we do a quick, quick fire? Yeah, that, was the, that was the cut out. That was, it? that's why I paused. That yeah. was the cut. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, that was the cut. Of course, of course. I yeah. Yes, fire. Quick fire. Yeah, quick, super quick we fire. We did one of these got... before, I seem to remember. Oh, yeah. I, I fucked it right yeah. up. <laughs> well, you've got five minutes, so Listen, mate, it's your okay. fault. No, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay, great. Best advice you ever remember receiving? My dad, who was always very ill, had probably five or six heart attacks before he died. He was the one that told me, don't waste a second of your life. That's about the only advice he ever gave me, but it's the best advice I've ever had. And the worst advice you ever remember receiving? The worst advice? Oh, Christ. Oh. Do you know... I can't remember, because I don't... I have this thing about anything that was bad that's happened, it's automatically wiped off in my mind. Because it's in the past, mm. it's irrelevant to me, because mm. I only ever look forward. So whilst I can appreciate things like the best advice, yeah. if it's the worst advice, it obviously involves some pain, and I've had therapy <laughs> to have that all removed from my brain. So... It's a good answer. Yeah. Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't sit here thinking of bad advice because it would have meant to register would have been I had to have taken note of it or I had to act upon bad advice. And I only act on my own advice. I've never listened to other people. And if I get it wrong, then I have it artificially removed from my brain so that it doesn't affect my positivity going forward. Love that. Um, what's the best business deal you've ever done? So many to me. <laughs> <sighs> the best. The best business deal is washing Morris Blow's car in Loughton and getting 10 shillings instead of 5 shillings. That's, <laughs> that's when I felt, that was like a popcorn moment. Uh, business deal, the best business deal ever. Signing Steve Davis up against a lamppost in 1978 in Blackpool. And if he hadn't signed, I'd have had him up against the lamppost. Because <laughs> his dad wanted him to carry on as an amateur. And I was determined. I, I thought, no, you've, you've got to roll the dice. You've got so much ability. You've got to find out how good you are. You have to turn pro. So the best business deal. And it was the only contract. That's 1978. So that is 43 years ago. That contract was for three years. I haven't had a contract with Steve Davis since. And I've now managed him for 43 years. Wow. And he's still my best friend. And that's better than any contract you sign. Amen. What's the worst business deal you've ever done? What went wrong the most? Mm. Oh, it's 
seeing gain. <laughs> this is good. I mean, we need to learn from this. You know, just it, remove all negativity. It, I'm just really thinking. You see, even when I did bad deals, somehow or the other, they ended up great. I don't know why. I bought. I've got quite a lot of property in Romford. And I bought this house off the council. And I had it valued at 2.2 million. It's in the middle of Romford. I had some land, I had some buildings in the middle of Romford and this was next door. And it looked to be exactly the right spot for future developments. There used to be a pub in New York, a Guinness pub in New York, that was in the middle of two high rise. And this Guinness pub went for hundreds of millions because it had a pivotal spot. Mm. So I bought this place for 2.2 million and I owed the bank millions at the time. I was hoping to get it. I bid 1.1, at it valued at 2.2. And I got it for 1.1 and then said to my advisors who valued it for 2.2, go and sell it. And they couldn't sell it for 500. Right. So it was a disaster. And it, I had to add it on my overdraft. Like, oh, God, where am I going? And it just showed me that lesson that, Barry, you went for a short-term profit. Mm. That's not you. It's just a lot. I've told you before, this is not how we operate. But anyway, took it on the chin, 16% interest. The world and his brother was killing me. 1988, uh, two years of my life. And over the years, you know, things got better. I paid, repaid the mortgage and all that sort of stuff. And then would you believe it? I ended up getting planned permission for the centre of Romford for a whole tower of flats, offices, everything on this land. It made a fortune. <laughs> God smiles on me. Amen. Amen to that. What's the best event you've ever put on? Oh. Do you know, I'd have to say that... Now, people will criticise this because the World Snooker Championships... At the Crucible is something really, really special. But the Crucible was there before me, so I can't really take the benefit. The big boxing events have been special, you know, and obviously Nigel Ben Eubank too, we've already discussed. But the reason I can't take credit for that is because Eddie has surpassed me with Frotch Groves and AJ 90,000, you know. So I can't say that's my best one when someone else has done much better. I've got to look at something that has really got my hand writing over completely and no one can say I've done better. So that puts me straight at the World Darts Championships at Alexandra Palace, a sport that I was very, very fortunate. Again, when you talk about best deals, there's a program just on best deals because each one of them has been pivotal in my life. Davis signing contract was the best deal, but very close behind that was acquiring control of the Professional Darts Corporation, acquiring control of the World Snooker, you know. Now, the World Snooker Championships, because it was at Circus Tavern with 800 people in Perfleet, paying 37 grand prize money, to move that sport to Alexandra Palace, 85,000 people, sold every ticket, prize fund 2.5 million, darts player winner getting 500,000, 
and to feel the warmth in that room when every one of them stands up chanting, stand up if you love the darts. And we've all had a good few beers as we should. <laughs> that, that is probably my greatest achievement. Love it. I'm not going to ask about your worst event because you won't remember it. So I'm going to move on from that one. <laughs> well, my worst event's Michael Watson. I oh, know I will right, remember yeah. that. I mean, there was an event where the previous fight, I thought Eubank won, Eubank Watson won. Michael felt he'd been robbed. The British public felt he'd been robbed. So it was a natural rematch. But it didn't sell. So it lost a load of money. And then on top of that, mm. this design, I mean, Michael gave Eubank a boxing lesson for... 11 rounds, walked on to one punch in the entire fight and ended up in the state, you know, dreadful, dreadful. Mm. And the resilience of him is probably the greatest battle I've ever seen anyone fight. Much, we talk about my problems. I mean, they're insignificant in comparison to the battle that Michael Watson went through. I was there when he first moved his index finger and that mm. was about two years. You know, this man is a total legend, but the worst day, the worst experience, the worst event was the night that Michael Watson got injured. Mm. Mm. Who would you say the, the best talent you've ever worked with is and why? It just comes back to the same favourites really, doesn't it? Steve Davis, because he changed my life. It's yeah. as simple as that. I wouldn't, I'm sure I would have been successful in almost anything because as you can see, I can talk the hind leg <laughs> of a donkey and I'm quite smart. You know, I know I'm not an idiot, but... Steve Davis changed my life, mm. signing him and him winning the world championships. I think Eubank changed my life in the boxing, gave me a champion, gave me a leverage, gave me a platform. Yeah. Yeah, and then I think, you know, different things in my life, discovering poker in Atlantic City when Lennox Lewis fought Andrew Galanta. I made a shed load of money mm. out of that, you know, and it was great fun and I, I love playing myself as well. You know, buying the Euro Pro Tour and watching these golfers come through what is effectively Division, division 3 of golf, mm. watching them go on and win on the European Tour, win on the US Tour, get in the Ryder Cup, and know they're graduates from, from our little tour is really satisfying. Yeah. So there's a whole host of things, you know. Mm. Perhaps creating the world's only live fishing event, so bizarre that it's still there after... 27, 28 years. You know, as you get older, the longevity of events, things don't last unless they're good. Mm. And, you know, and one-off events like Fishermania, I think when I'm six foot under or wherever, when people talk about barrier, they will talk about boxing and snooking. A certain degree of people will talk about fishing or things like that, you know, mm. because it's whatever's relevant. I mean, what we've become is the king of niche sport. Yeah. It's not football. Don't even try to compete. But we can dominate all the niche sports and do a good job for niche sports men and women mm. and fans of niche sports that perhaps weren't serviced by the existing TV platforms. Today's mm. world is different with streaming, isn't it? Because there are so many platforms. Why, there are so many podcasts. Mm. I mean, where were podcasts a few years ago? Yeah. You know? No, didn't mm. exist. And yet, they're very useful weapons in terms of media awareness and creating interest in different attitudes and parts of life. Mm. Do you have one person or um, 
talent that you work with that was just hard, really hard work, kind of oh. worse to work with? Lam, <laughs> where do you stop? <laughs> I mean, I got, I mean, there used to be a promoter called Mickey Duff, who wasn't everybody's friend, nor mine, but he used to say smart things. And one of the things he came out, he said, if you want loyalty in boxing, buy a dog. <laughs> and that's probably right. You see, the trouble is with boxing, if you fall in love with the fighters, you know what they go through, you watch them practicing, doing a job that you wouldn't do for a lot of money. And then you see them when they've been beat, mm. or you see them after their career, and they've got the scars of war, but they don't have the assets of their endeavors. Yeah. But that also means that the fighters obviously always looking for extra, you know, a few quid extra from anybody and contracts and things like that are just the beginning of the conversation. As Don mm. King once said, negotiations begin once a contract's been signed. <laughs> and that's the world we're in. So I've had lots of fighters that have disappointed me. They know who they are, they don't even have to be mentioned. Mm. But we can talk about Steve Collins and people like that that took my love and never repaid it. Mm. Whether that makes them right or wrong, that's for others to judge. Mm. In terms of, you know, other people, no, I mean, generally speaking, I think if you, if you are fair with people, most of them will be fair with you. Sport is a short-term career, so you always must understand, you know, that, that people got to look after themselves and their families. And sometimes that won't agree with what you had in mind. Mm. Mm. So this show now, because we're on pretty much every channel, we're on TikTok and Instagram as well as just the audio version, it's called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Mm. And um, I have this quote, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. So these will be the final two, final two questions. So um, what's the greatest risk you've ever taken in your career? think what when I do something the risk element has been accepted before I do anything the only people that take risks are people that do spontaneous actions stupid people you know? <laughs> people that I call them fur coat no knickers you know? they look good but they've got no fucking idea what they're doing and there's a lot of household names out there that would fall in that category I don't make, I like to give the impression that I'm an East End Barrow boy. But I've got to tell you, I'm super smart. <laughs> I don't make mistakes. I don't make decisions unless I've evaluated every side of the upside, the downside, the risk reward on my endeavor, either financial or time or emotional. Everything is categorized, analyzed and acted upon. And if it fails, it's not because I took a risk. Because once I take my decision to proceed, there's no, there's no, thing, thing, there's no such thing as risk anymore. There's success and failure, mm. but there's not risk. And the word disruptive, the disruptive entrepreneur, what does the word disruptive mean to Love you? It. Love it. Love <laughs> it. That's what we do. Yeah. We go into situations that other people haven't been into, or we go into situations with a different attitude, but we go into disrupt on purpose. Disruptive is not a bad word because disruption can be a good and positive 
side of life and business. Because sometimes you need to disrupt to get the real value out of any commodity or any product or any service. So for example, if I'm going into a new sport, which is perhaps uh, government controlled by one of the old amateur bodies, I am considered disruptive. But who benefits from that? The answer is the participants benefit generally more than anyone else because we will commercialise in a better way or manner than the existing incumbents because they don't have the experience or the knowledge and they're only interested, like when we went back to our traditionalists against casual. The traditionalists are only interested in the sport. Mm. They don't give a monkey with the sportsmen and women. They don't give a monkey if it makes a profit. They're interested in the sport. Mm. It's a bit like a football fan. They don't care if the club's in debt to a trillion pounds as long as they're winning. They're not interested in the long term. They're passionate, they're traditionalists. They're ignorable. You move on to the people that really count, the other 95%. Mm. So to be disruptive is to be positive and to create good by change. That's what we do. I love that. And I want to sneak, sneak one last one in because I think it's really important. What do you think your legacy is? What would you like your legacy to be and how would you like to be remembered? The, the most satisfying moment I have now in my reflective years is look on back, looking back on people that I've had a relationship with and seeing what they've learned from that relationship, how they've developed themselves and where they are now. And sometimes it's a sad story and sometimes it's a happy story. Sometimes people have gone down. We all have choices in life which road to go down. There's a bad road, there's a good road and there's a road that's pretty average. There's, there's always three roads. When you go down a good road, you change your life. When you go down an average road, it's pretty boring. And when you go down a bad road, you generally get banged up or something. <laughs> um, but I love looking back on people that have been successful. And I hope that what we've taught them in a manner of association is be useful to them. But hard work, saving money, making sure you don't extend too much. Uh, so my legacy, my favourite legacy, would be two things. One is, for the people that work with me, there was a very good writer who wrote about me years, 20 or 30 years ago. And I don't know why I can't remember his name, must be old age, but you would know his name. He's a top journalist, sports journalist. And he wrote that the epitaph on my tomb should be, here lies Barry Hearn equally at home on the cobbles as in the boardroom. I'll add that. As far as legacy in sport is, I'd like to think that we have helped people change their lives without barriers to entry, where people can come from anywhere, be it any religion, any colour, any sex, and benefit from sport. Because as a sports fan that wants to be entertained, I applaud excellence, but I believe excellence should be paid for. And that should change people's lives. And I've got a few of my ex-fighters, ex-snooker players, well, some of them done very well. And I hope perhaps we've been a part of that process. Barry, I've had so much fun. This was as good as the first. Thank you very much. Pleasure, mate. Thank good you. Luck. Thank you. All right.
All right. right. Well, we didn't do too bad. Yeah. Thanks yeah, a lot. That was great. No, no. Yeah. Well, listen, like everything, we could always mamble on for yeah. Yeah. about five hour more hours. But we should do it again in a year or so. And uh, Yeah, we'd love to promote your book when it comes out. Yeah, yeah. Well, that'll be yeah. out in April. So, yeah, it's yeah. going to, yeah. It's interesting buying it. I've never done, I mean, I've done lots of books for other people, but I've never done, yeah, I read it and read it and read it. I'm, I'm correcting words, you know. <laughs> and it's just like, should I put that in? Should I put it? I'm waiting, every now and again someone dies and does me such a huge favour because then you can tell the truth about them. Yeah. yeah. Before that, they get upset, don't they? Yeah. So I'm still waiting for a couple more to die. <laughs> if, they, if they could have a little nudge, it would be useful. Well done. Thanks a lot, Barry. I really come, appreciate come it. Thanks for your time. No, a pleasure. Hey, it's Rob again, and I need to own up to something. Entrepreneurs don't celebrate enough. I bet you don't. I know I don't. And we went through the five-year anniversary of The Disruptive Entrepreneur, which is a massive achievement, and the 600th episode, which again, how many podcasts have done 600 episodes? And we didn't even celebrate. So I want to celebrate the 600th episode and the five-year anniversary with you. We have something new and special that I think you're going to love. Now, many of you who listen... You're on my Facebook supporter program. You get 10 pieces of content with me as a bonus over and above what the general public get. We have supporter-only meetups, socials, dinners. I do Ask Me Anythings every sort of two weeks or so live. We do Make Cash and social media challenges. You get discounts. You get to come to events and you get premium ticket upgrades and so much more. But what I've done to celebrate the five-year anniversary, the 600th episode, is actually created a decentralized platform called Rob.team. Many of you don't use Facebook. We're in a a more modern decentralized age now. So if you go right now to Rob.team, www.rob.team, you can join my supporter and Rob.team program. You can choose whether you enroll on Facebook or the non-native decentralized platform that I've built specially for you. And for just £5 or $5 a month, cancel any time you get 10 premium pieces of content from me you don't get anywhere else, deep dive content. You get supporter and team only meetups, socials and dinners throughout the year. Uh, Two weekly Ask Me Anything Live that I don't do in any public situation anymore. We do seven day challenges about five times a year, make cash challenges, social media challenges. You get premium ticket upgrades, special discounts. I have um, three Facebook account managers. We often have Zoom meetings with them and then we update you sort of from the horse's mouth live um, what they shared with us. Um, Whenever we do events and webinars, we never do replays or recordings. But as a supporter and team member, you get those free. You get an extra 10% discount off any of my trainings. And get this, if you're one of the first 60, I can't do 600, you'll see why. Then I'm actually going to do a 15 minute one to one personal call with you. And if you're one of the first 256, I've just set up a brand new Rob.team uh, WhatsApp group where you'll get my mobile number and you know we can share strategies and tactics together. So go right now to www.rob.team. That's www.rob.team. First 50, get a 15 minute one-to-one call with me. Um, I'm gonna do that after your first month subscription and I, you know it's gonna take me a bit of time to do that, but I'll do it, I'll, I'm a man of my word. And the first 256, you get into the Rob.team supporters only WhatsApp group. There's loads of bonuses in there. This program has been running for two years. My six stage seven figure launch formula, which was a paid for course, it's in there. How to write a best-selling book course is in there. 
PAVA and social media manager and brand manager documents and job descriptions are in there. Marketing KPIs documents are in there. How to dramatically increase your fees. The book I'm writing, the up-to-date version is in there. There's so much content. It's only £5 or $5 a month. Uh, And I'm adding this new platform, Rob.team, to celebrate the 5th year anniversary and the 600 episodes. And first 60, 15-minute one-to-one call with me. First 256, get into the um, exclusive WhatsApp group. So be quick, go now, because we have millions of subscribers and downloads and views a week now for the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show across all platforms. So see you there at www.rob.team. Go now.